Looking like the Darth Vader of podcasters out there. That's me, baby. <laughs> the Darth Vader. Got that, got that standing energy and everything. There we go. Oh, wow. Fancy. You impressed? Impressive. It, it looks like there's speakers coming out of the microphone or something. <laughs> yeah. It shields me from all Peter's dirty words getting into my microphone. <laughs> It's been dropping a lot of positive vibes lately. only on the other side. Yeah. <laughs> you can't see it, but that's what's actually written on on this side of it that I can see. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, ghostwriter for the upcoming autobiography, Some Turkeys and a Misanthrope, The Jeremy Ruggles Story. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, I'm, huh. I want one for Christmas? (laughs) <laughs> you'll be on the mailing list i'll get you an autograph copy maybe do you want to explain any of that or just leave it there i mean it's a reference to the immortal classic the christmas song by nat king cole is it a turkey and some mistletoe makes the season bright oh and i'm the turkey master because i'm so yeah. good at bowling that's my bowling name for everyone and you're a bit of a misanthrope and i'm a bit of a misanthrope <laughs> Yeah. Does all make sense now? Should we introduce any other guests? Any other hosts? <laughs> I don't know. That that covers you and me, I think, both. All right, cool. Yeah, does Jeremy not even need to go any further with an introduction for himself now? He's got a new book coming out. He's got to hype it. Yeah. Please get my new book, The Turkey Master is a Misanthrope. That's that's what you said, right? Yeah. Give or yeah, take. Sure. <laughs> this is a solid collaboration between the two of you. <laughs> well, if that's the case, then I am co-host Peter Cook, and I am a manufacturer of manger scenes for teenagers. My company is the Christmas Naivete and Unstable Table Decor Company. <laughs> Oh my God, you really did it. Congratulations. Wow. He heard Sean was bringing the fire and he, he had to fire back. I, that's a, it, yeah. Once Sean said he had some fire, I just kind of buckled down for the past week and or, the, or like an hour ago. <laughs> and I was coming up out of a nap and that's what popped into my head. Oh, wow. Love it. Divinely inspired. Bob, you don't even have to try if you don't want, but go ahead. Try it. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I got stuck on unstable table, and <laughs> I, I don't know what I can do from there. But I am Bob Bucko Jr., uh, Santa's stunt double and professional Rudolph Wrangler. Oh. Uh-huh. Oh, you, you just went with the truth for your uh, title. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not trying to sell something like you guys <laughs> with your products and your capitalism. Just an honest fat cat from Dubuque here to tell it like it is. 
Well, Bob, you've been on the podcast before. We thank you for coming back. Would you like to just say a little bit about yourself before we get into this very special episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar? Well, when I'm not doing uh, holiday stunts, I uh, play music. Just had an album come out on Already Dead Tapes, which you might be familiar with. The excellent Sam Lockward. And um, by the time you hear this, I'll have played out of state for the first time since that weird stuff happened last year. And uh, yeah, I don't know what else. Just nose to the grindstone, right? Is that what they say? Mm-hmm. How many how many albums do you have on Bandcamp at this point? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Too many to count. I remember I remember reading a review where someone had like the number in the fifties. I don't know how long ago that was. So all right. And how many of those would you say are good? <laughs> Two to three uh, hundred. I don't know. Yeah, not bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, never a dud. You know, I'm the turkey master of music. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Well, we're glad to have you back. A short uh, nine months after your last appearance, hyping up yeah, some Isley Brothers. Yeah, I was so much more us. humble then. <laughs> you know why he's not humble? That Isley Brothers ep is our second most listened to episode. Did you know Ooh, that, Bob? I do now. Yeah. Well, my self esteem is through the roof. That's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> our gift to you on this holiday season. Giving BBJR a good esteem, self-esteem boost here. Unhumbled. <laughs> Get ready, world. He's coming. Well, you're here for our very special Christmas installment of I Buy That for a Dollar, our third one, correct? This is number three. That, that is, is accurate. Correct. Correct, yes. And we do things a little differently for these. Rather than talk about one record, we each bring... A Christmas album, and we play a couple tracks, and don't do quite as deep of a dive into the artist because we, you know, we're, we're covering a lot of territory here. It's it's more about merriment and togetherness, right? Indeed, yeah. Indeed. We're trying to make the season bright and <laughs> trying to sell four times as many dollar records. <laughs> <laughs> the the ho- the holiday season's about. Bigger sales, right? Bigger sales. <laughs> so is the goal to cover an album that eventually stops being a dollar record because of your coverage? I mean, I think that's happened to literally every record we've talked about. Like within a week, you know, this the Sweet. value just skyrockets. Damn, I, I should have brought one of my records to the table this week. Yeah. <laughs> you fool. <laughs> Gotta get out of that dollar bin, man. <laughs> Gotta take advantage. Well, Sean, would you like to uh, throw the first log on the Yule? Wait. <laughs> just, just throw some I buzzwords. Would, I would be honored just, to uh, roast the initial chestnuts. Would you like to sprinkle some eggnog over the fire? <laughs> <clears throat> I would love that. Um, as it just so happens, I've got a straight fucking banger ready to go for my christmas 2021 selection swear worthy banger we're gonna hear exactly mm-hmm. swear worthy banger because we're gonna listen to the gospel <laughs> keynotes that's right some religious oh. holiday music who would probably if they were still alive not appreciate the intro i just gave them but <laughs> side a track one had it not been for love this song rules i play this every christmas i'm excited to share it with everyone here we go 
in particular but the song in general did a thing to my brain that happened this isn't the first time this has happened but listening to like a religious song but it's like kind of sexy and you're mm-hmm. kind of vibing in like a, <laughs> a certain way that you're like this feels wrong like I don't I don't know how to break through this cognitive dissonance that's what I was feeling as I listened. I mean, that's a lot of black gospel, though, you know? Yeah. <laughs> a lot of the white gospel did a good job of removing all of the sex from it, but it's uh, it's still intact within certain denominations of the Christian church, for sure. And if you look oh, cool. at the album artwork on this jacket, like, there's just some sexy dudes in this band, and, you know, they're not afraid to show it. Yeah, Jesus is sexy. Right? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I'm trying to sell Jesus on this holiday season. <laughs> <laughs> to the kids. Yeah, this one's for the children. We're crossing over. <laughs> oh, jeez. No, some, some... <laughs> okay, so I'm going to do a record that was on Star Song, distributed by Word. Um, no. <laughs> the thing I noticed right away on that, is, like just how swinging the rhythm section was. Yes. Like after that chorus intro and after every chorus, when it goes back into the verse, it feels like it almost speeds up a little because the drummer just kind of goes straight up top one and three, two and four, as opposed to that kind of like loose, funky swing on the chorus. And it just, mm-hmm. it's strict. It's, it's, yeah, it, it is sexy, Jeremy. It is very sexy. <laughs> I can't separate that from God now. <laughs> yeah. I'm already worried what this episode is going to do to me and all of us. Did we ruin Christmas? <laughs> but that bass, though, I mean, the, mm. the tone is just so nasty. It's so mm. funky. And the drums aren't super flashy or anything, but that drummer's real heavy-handed and super funky, which is a bit of a rarity in gospel music. There's plenty of gospel groups that didn't have drummers, and if they did, sometimes they got funky, but oftentimes it was like more background support, whereas this rhythm section is driving the song. Right, yeah, usually it's like that 2-4 snare, like that kind of up-tempo thing instead of like this, yeah. Ah, oh, the beat just kills on this. That's what I'm saying. And those, yeah. those gospel quartet harmonies are untouchable. Mm. It just the song is cool. It's kind of rare to hear an original Christmas song on a record and be like, "Yep, this is the one." You know? <laughs> I, yeah, you, you showed this to me a couple years ago, and I had listened to it a fair amount, but it had been a couple years. And in my mind, as soon as I heard this just now, I was like, "Oh yeah, this isn't a, a standard. Like this isn't one that people know." <laughs> and it just it just instantly feels like it could be a standard too. It it's be, so yeah. natural. Yeah. yeah. This is a a lost Christmas gospel classic for sure. And the rest of the record is really good, but that first track is is definitely the standout for sure. What year did you say it was? This is 1978. Oh, okay. It was originally released on Nashboro Records, which is one of the big gospel labels if you're going to get into old school gospel from that time period. Um, the version I actually have was reissued in 1981 on the novelty Christmas label Holiday Records. So just three years later, it was a novelty record? 
Apparently. I mean, who knows how that side of the music industry works or how it worked in 1981, but... Is that the Pickwick of holiday novelty <laughs> labels? <laughs> Probably just was Pickwick. It, it very well could have been. <laughs> Underneath the same umbrella somehow. You want a, a quick bio on the gospel keynotes? Yeah. 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 Cool. The gospel keynotes are led by a guy named Willie Neal Johnson, who is a semi-important figure in the world of gospel music, especially 70s and 80s gospel. He formed this group in the mid-60s, and they started hitting their stride in the 70s and then continued on in the 80s and were a a Grammy-nominated band at one point, did a ton of touring, a lot of shows, released dozens of records, and part of their success was also due to another high-profile singer in the group, a guy by the name of Paul Beasley, who was a very renowned gospel vocal talent at the time, specifically notable for having a falsetto vocal range, which you can hear on display throughout this record. He was also an occasional member of a pretty legendary gospel group called the Mighty Clouds of Joy. One thing that kind of sets this group apart in the world of gospel is a lot of the big name authentic gospel groups have their roots going way, way back. You know, a lot of these groups started in the forties and then just like never broke up. They just kept replacing members as they retired or died or anything. So this group didn't start until a little bit later comparatively. And in like the seventies and eighties were kind of considered to be like one of the younger gospel groups in comparison And I think part of that image was also just them not being afraid to take some chances with some newer styles and instruments. And you can hear that on here. I mean, this is 78, but they've got that full synthesizer going throughout the record. And like we said, they got that really funky kind of sexy rhythm going on. And I think it works really well with this group in this record. Is the whole record a Christmas record? Yes. What's it called? What's the actual record? Christmas with the gospel keynotes. Oh, yeah. That sounds like a Christmas record. <laughs> <laughs> All killer, no filler, yeah. Yeah, so I, I picked this up out of a dollar bin a few years ago just because the cover was cool and I like gospel music and I'll take a chance on any kind of uh, gospel soul-related Christmas record and this has been become a fast favorite of mine and a Christmas tradition to play this record, usually at least a couple times every year. Now, how easy is it to find this record? I mean, there's only two pressings, the Nashboro pressing and the Holiday Records pressing, so it's not like you're going to find this in every dollar bin, but you're probably not going to find it for anything other than cheap, Yeah, if that wasn't a confusing way to say it. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Christmas records, gospel records, (laughs) you're getting into, again, a niche within a niche there. There's not a ton of people that are looking for that kind of stuff. So this is most likely to be, you know, underneath the bins in a falling apart cardboard box in the back of the store kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But now you know, and when you see it, you can grab it. Hunt for it and you will find it cheap. Exactly. Until now. Yeah, now until it's now. Be a really expensive. <laughs> you ruined you get it. Get it while you can. If you wait till next Christmas, you're going to be fucked. <laughs> Two S-O-L. swears. Exactly. Wow, fucked for Christmas, Sean Hartman. <laughs> well, it is a sexy record that's, after all. That's right. We're throwing out the rule book with this one. Uh, last thing I want to say about this group is 
they were renowned for their high energy stage show, especially the lead singer, Willie Neal Johnson, who you can hear throughout the record. He's the one doing like the leads and the talking and the kind of uh, shouting and the spoken word sections in the fine gospel quartet style. But I checked out a little bit of live footage from them last night from around this time period. And it's, it's awesome. (laughs) If you're into this and you have some free time, just look up gospel keynotes live on YouTube and dig in there. It's, they do a great job singing these songs live and the energy is, is uh, intense for a gospel group. Nice. What do you want to leave us with? Yeah, let's, uh, let's hear one more song as referenced in my fake title. We're going to play the Christmas song. This is side B track two. Just nuts roasting on an open fire Jack Frost nipping at your nose Yuletide carols being sung by a choir Folk dressed up like Eskimos Help to make the season bright Tiny tots with their eyes on a glow Will find it hard to sleep tonight They know that Loaded with lots of toys and goodies on his sleigh And every mother's child is gonna try To see if reindeer really knows how to fly And so Kids from one to many two. Ooh, that falsetto. Yeah, right? Silky. That, what was his name again? The, the falsetto singer? That was Paul Beasley. Paul Beasley. Oh, yep. that is like And a... then just a, f- just a few years after this, he left the group and made a few solo records. And like I said, he was also on some albums by the Mighty Clouds of Joy and I think a few other gospel groups at the time. Might have to seek that stuff out. Yeah, it's kind of got that uh, Eddie Kendricks vibe going on with the vocals. Yeah, dude. Comes in strong. And again, like the rhythm, man. I mean, that's like slow jam territory. Yeah, even on the slowest tracks on there. With like the little rim clicks and stuff. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's still got that funk. And it doesn't always jump out at you. For me, it took a couple listens to really appreciate that under there. Yeah, super subtle on this one. Yeah. But that falsetto just... 
that takes up all the space you need <laughs> for sure like as far as what's up front my favorite parts or some of my favorite parts of this record is when paul's falsetto vocals start blending with the synthesizer a little bit and you get some really cool effects going on there nice well that's it for me that's the gospel keynotes christmas with the gospel keynotes from 1978 and bob i think you're presenting the next selection what do you got all right i'm gonna present you know i never learned how to use powerpoint i was able (laughs) to get out of college just in time so i've never given a real presentation but uh We'll give it a go with, uh, and I'll probably somehow mispronounce this, but I always referred to them as uh, Ferrante and Teicher. I think that's pretty close. I, I looked it up earlier today yeah. because I realized this is one of those names that I've seen every single time I've gone record digging, but yep. I don't know if I've ever heard another person say the, the words out loud before. Right, right. Actually, my introduction to them, besides just thumbing through and seeing incredibly colorful record jackets with those names on it, was the noise artist Arvo Zylo when uh, my label put out a double album that he did that was all glitch samples of uh, Fronte and Teicher. Interesting. So I came into it from a real weird angle. Yeah, but honestly a pretty good angle when you learn a little bit of the bio of this group. So Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you know, for basically... Like, uh, I guess you kind of got to go into the whole thing of uh, easy listening music and Exotica and Kitsch and all that fun stuff to kind of Mm -hmm. contextualize it. Space Age music. Yeah, Space Age Bachelor Pad stuff. Like, Mm -hmm. it very very much was what that was. I mean, some of their coolest album covers are always the outer space ones anyway. But the idea that at the time, LPs were generally purchased by adults to, you know, as kind of an entertainment form almost like watching television or something like in the fifties. So it was about creating mood and ambiance and whatnot in your home. Exactly. Either entertaining guests or trying to have a, a special evening with your significant music. That's right. Yeah. But yeah, like uh, I think where you were going with it, Sean is um, both uh, what was Arthur uh, Fronte and Louis Teicher. Well, before we dive into the bio, should we listen to a song first, though? Oh, do we want to hit that? Okay. Let's do that. That'll that'll take us right into what I wanted to say, then. That's perfect. Let's start at the very end with uh, the last song on the album, which is Happy Sleigh Ride. Right. Not to not be confused to be con- with Sleigh Ride. Yeah, which is also on the album. <laughs> I was like, what? What? what's the descriptor? What kind of Sleigh Ride? Yeah, um, I feel I feel like this encapsulates like aspects of the two that were way more experimental than one would guess on the surface for what's basically supposed to be like audio wallpaper. Yeah, and if you were to make like a glitched out remix of this song, it would have to be called Ecstatic Sleigh Ride. <laughs> Ooh, slappy sleigh ride. <laughs> Perfect. All right, well, let's hear that.
So as much of that is schmaltzy and cheesy, there's always still elements here and there where it's like, oh, that's an interesting combination of notes or an interesting shift in direction that I wasn't expecting. There's something to it, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, they're, they're Juilliard educated. Apparently that's where they met and started performing almost immediately. And a lot of elements that you would kind of associate with the schooling that they'd have kind of come into play. Just even little things like like about 30 seconds in, it goes from like the typical Christmas major key to like an arabesque kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden to like a double time feel, bringing the arabesque back in over the double time feel. It's very intelligent arranging. Like not only were they piano players, but it was about the arrangements that they made. And then there's also kind of weird... The other song I'll play has a lot more of this, but some of the high tinkly kind of sounds, whatnot, whatever, that are kind of, um, they, you know, they use prepared pianos, like a la John Cage, except in the context of making wallpaper music, you know? <laughs> yeah. Which to me is like incredibly subversive in its own odd way. Yeah, I got a little bit of holiday whiplash listening to that. <laughs> Hey, it's a sleigh ride, you know? Yeah, yeah, but there was the terrain was changing. (laughs) Did you land on your head? It was like the cartoon, like head, back, feet, head, like rope bouncing down. (laughs) In a way that, like, that makes a lot of sense to tie it into like Spike Jones or something or like um, the Warner Brothers cartoon music because yeah. like all these all these things are supposed to like illustrate something yeah very illustrative yeah it's interesting because it's such a different universe than any of the music that the four of us traffic in on our own or most of our listening tastes it's, yeah. it's an america that definitely does not exist anymore yeah to a certain extent i mean we've talked about with uh easy listening how it's just like transition and been repackaged into you know lo-fi beats to study to nowadays oh, wow oh brutal that's, that's <laughs> perfect it's exactly the same because one of the hallmarks uh, musically of easy listening was they would take small memorable sections of classical pieces or movie soundtracks and then just like mm-hmm. stretch it out and make it like a very palatable like oh yeah i recognize this i like this melody and it just kind of exists in the background and that's exactly the way a lot of like yeah. chill, lo-fi electronic and hip-hop music is made these days. So the the energy's still there. No, that that's totally a straight line. Yeah, I just never considered it. But that's yeah, I can totally see that. Yeah, and the other thing with lounge music is you know, mood music was the other name for it in a lot of ways. So yeah. some of it is to make you chill out. Some of it is to have like a happy party atmosphere. And a lot of it was made to keep people upbeat while they're out Christmas shopping or, you know, in the office dealing with like stressful situations. (laughs) They wanted to have this light upbeat music. So it doesn't bog you down. Yeah. I think the most absurd one I came across uh, at the record store I work at recently was uh, music for pooped people and a couple splayed out on the front cover like have looking like they had been out all night and they're ready to rest they're pooped people they need music to relax to yeah and if if you don't have a record for when you're feeling pooped what are you gonna do go to bed but hey hey, hey, let's not undersell this (laughs) (laughs) co-host sean sent us a clip 
of Ferrante and Teicher, if I said that right. And these guys are bonkers good piano players. Yeah. It was a clip from like the 50s of just the two of them just going nuts on a track and like plucking the strings directly inside the piano and playing like faster than my mind can even comprehend (laughs) at, at the same time together. Yeah, bona fide shredders yeah. for sure. Oh, for sure. And also, like you said, like going inside the piano, like the idea of uh, being both a virtuoso, but also using the instrument to serve sound. I think a lot of times it's like one or the other in our heads. Totally. You know, like, are you serving the song or are you a virtuosic musician? And it's like, okay, well, these guys are pulling off both. Right. And to get and together, I mean, they basically like they had a lifetime in music together, like from I think their recording their active recording career, I believe, was like around fifty one to seventy nine. I mean, obviously things continue to come out. I think they officially retired in eighty nine from what I remember Yeah, But yeah, like they you know, the eighties were not as big for them. (laughs) Right. Yeah. They mostly kind of by the eighties were just doing kind of like smaller concerts and whatnot Mm -hmm. actually taking a quick look on discogs 5200 concerts before retiring in 1989 wow 90 million records sold 22 gold and platinum records out of 150 albums recorded wow that's astounding yeah and that's just man you're never gonna see something like that again in the music industry oh yeah yeah things are way too divvied up now but also like the idea that it was it was them like who keeps a career going that long without like either breaking up or all kinds of terrible fighting and drama publicly and you know i mean it's just it's just kind of amazing how well they click as musicians together Mm -hmm. i'd also read that when they retired they retired to neighboring islands in western florida (laughs) And then, like, lived out the rest of their retirement just, like, hanging out with each other and, like, playing piano duos in the local piano shop. And then they both passed away within a year of each other in, like, 2008, 2009, something like that. Wow. Which I'd also read, there's a a lot of rumors and speculation that they were a secret couple, which Hmm. makes sense to me, but there's no confirmation anywhere that I could find. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it would have to have been low key in their time. Sadly, exactly. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Regardless, definitely two people that really knew each other musically inside and out. Yeah, yeah. And like you said, they started their career at Juilliard, which, for anyone that doesn't know, is a very prestigious music college here in the States. And they were very familiar with a lot of avant-garde experimental stuff happening, you know, John Cage and dealing with these prepared pianos and stuff. I mean, the early forties at Juilliard had to be a crazy time. Yeah. You know, you, you you know, I mean, cause you're, you're smack in the middle of all the 20th century, you know, basically upending of traditional Western music. Mm -hmm. And then, and then to take that and turn it into a nightclub act. Like it's dueling pianos for music nerds. Yeah, it's it's pretty <laughs> and wild. Then they figured out how to make it become dueling pianos for music nerds that also appeals to basically every white person on the planet. It would right, seem. right. <laughs> yeah, because this is this is this is the 
full turn away from your record, Sean, in -hmm. terms of vibe, feel, and also, um, yeah, it's, you know, like I said, in, in the sense that it's kind of this, like, you know, it's an America that doesn't exist, like the kind of, you know, that easy listening thing, but it's also tied into like, that weird 1950s into the early 60s post-war industrialization, hyper-capitalism. Obviously, basically, these are made and marketed to white people basically exclusively. And um, I don't know, it's it's just interesting to think that, you know, like this album came out in 62, so that's that's what, like 60 years ago? And it's, it's just fascinating to think of all the kind of changes you know culturally musically and everything that kind of render something like this obsolete when at the same time it sold 90 million records Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah to the extent that how many people know of this group now right right like you only know of them like sean said because you see him in every damn thrift store rack like yeah (laughs) yeah like the only people that know about this group are like crate diggers people that buy records at thrift stores, old people or people that somehow had like a really uh, close connection to their grandparents' record collections. Like right. <laughs> they, they're almost completely disappeared from the, the public consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. It's oh. an entire kind of, yeah, I guess it's just an entire genre that's irrelevant at this point. Yeah. And there has been some revival in some of this stuff, you know, like a lot of people have talked of, you know, sung the praises of Martin Denny or oh, yeah. Esquivel, Dick yep. Hyman, things like that. But uh, but these guys are, I think, regarded more like they're milk toast. Sure. You know, because sure. like, like Baxter and Denny and stuff really rode on the wave of that hip. Like, remember the late 90s uh, lounge craze? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oof, yeah, these guys went riding that, from what I can tell. But right. a little bit of research I did, if you find records of theirs from the 50s before they fully transitioned into the hit uh, Easy Listening Act, you can find a lot more of the kind of experimenting in the studio and like a lot heavier prepared piano stuff. And if cool. you're into that like space age bachelor pad vibe, definitely don't sleep on these guys. Yeah, and they did some percussion albums, which if you're like a weirdo like me that are into those kind of things... You know, like the persuasive percussion type stuff. Love that. You know, yeah, they did stuff like that because they were using, like you said, prepared pianos and they were really working with rhythm a lot. I See, I imagine it sounding like a KG Hino percussion album or something. Probably <laughs> 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 not that out there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's kind of like what Bob said earlier. You either think of people that are making palatable music or people that are completely rethinking the instrument and like making weird challenging music but it's not as often that people are like well how about we rethink the instrument but still make very accessible music and there's something to be said for that it's a very specific skill set i think Mm -hmm. to to blend those things when they're seemingly very disparate and in application kind of are you know like like you said like you hear one of these the next one i'll play for example, on the surface is every bit, you know, vocal chorus, all the schlock you would imagine, like for maybe the Mad Men Christmas party entertainment or something. <laughs> <laughs> like just terrible, bland, whitewashed, whatever. 
and somehow though it kind of rips man it kind of rips so i don't yeah. i don't know the math on it but it works <laughs> which song you got moonlight in vermont oh let's hear not, it not to be confused with moonlight on vermont by captain like, Beefheart, <laughs> which is, which is which is not a christmas song from what i can tell i listen to it at christmas there's All also right. a version of that on Willie Nelson's Stardust. Oh, that's right. Which you did an episode on, right? We did. See, I love promoting you guys on your own show because it almost <laughs> makes sense to do that. <laughs> I should be promoting you elsewhere. Well, right. let's, uh, let's fire up that riding mower and listen to the Mad Men <laughs> I don't even know if I ever watched the whole episode of that show, so I don't know if that why that's where I went with it. But this is uh side one track for Moonlight in Vermont. <laughs> Sounded like some I'm a sumac back there with the yeah the high uh, high yeah yeah that's the, that's what made me choose this one <laughs> I love that yeah it, I guess it, it was a I almost heard like a combination of Ima Sumac and Vinnie Bell the episode was that airport love theme was that <laughs> yeah <laughs> well I mean that's what's like that kind of, yeah that kind of crazy high vocal thing really offsets the 
you know, because I am not a fan of the vocal chorus work, you know what I mean? Like, like it's so straight up and down, and then you have this, it, it gives it a little bit of life. And I wanted to pick one that had the vocals in it just to show how the arrangement still worked. Also, if you notice, like, the piano stuff where what should be a big solo section one of the guys will just kind of hang on one note for a little while, kind of go, you know, almost like a monk thing. But again, in the context of like the like diametric opposite of what monk is, you know, Thelonious monk. <laughs> yes, there's but one monk. <laughs> Praise be for the Christmas. It's kind of an impressionistic thing going on in that. I would say, yeah. Yeah, I think that that's yeah, because that kind of lines up with the whole idea of it being like evocative of, you know, very specific visuals and feelings. Yeah, you're right. The other thing I want to note about this period of lounge records and things is another big element of it was this was around the time when stereo was becoming a new thing. So a lot of these lounge records would specifically play up having instruments hard panned and or like transitioning and hard panning throughout the song so you get this new stereo effect that was so novel right and i feel like it's easy to look back at that now and be like that's so silly that people were stoked about that but then when you like listen to these records or like on headphones or on a good stereo you're like that is kind of a cool effect though yeah yeah and, well and especially with this like hard panning the pianos like that when it's yeah. exactly. basically dueling piano you know it's just trying to I think like with this era stereo, they were coming at it trying to kind of replicate you being in an audience mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. a certain way. Whereas once you get to the late 60s, stereo is used to create the feeling you're smoking crappy weed or something. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And these guys with their brilliant piano playing and writing these arrangements that complement each other and weave in and out. They were kind of yeah. perfectly positioned to take over this little market here and, you know, right. sell 90 million records during their career. <laughs> All right. Who's up next? What's the next record we're talking about? It's me. I'm going to step up to the block here. What you got? I have the legendary Tijuana Christmas. I know Sean is familiar with this record. That's right. I've got it. Peter and Bob, you know this one? Don't know it. Just a tiny, tiny bit from the same person that gave me Snowbound, actually. <laughs> yeah, and at first I was like, oh, this is going to be a a major switch from Bob's choice, but it's really not. It's <laughs> kind of in the same vein in a I mean, sense. the brass thing was kind of, yeah, like the brass thing is kind of in that same general genre, I guess. Yeah, and this is also feels like it's meant to be kind of audio wallpaper. It's like very mood sure. music-y. But let me play a song so that you can know what I'm talking about. Let's do uh, the title cut, Tijuana Christmas. Tijuana. Yes, yes I do.
I believe there were sleigh bells going all the way through that. Yes, there were. That was so you know that it's a Christmas song since it wasn't. <laughs> it's the one on the album that's not a, you know, a standard Christmas song. Yeah, it's funny how that always works, especially in the novelty music world. Like, oh, we need a Christmas song. Put some sleigh bells on it. Close enough. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, that's why I consider all of John Coltrane's Interstellar Space to be a Christmas album. <laughs> <laughs> that's my kind of Christmas. <laughs> That reminds me, guys. I have a new Christmas movie to add to Eyes Wide Shut for my Christmas movies I watch every year. <laughs> the new one is The Green Knight. The yeah. Green Knight. Yeah, have you guys seen it? I have seen it. Does that take place on Christmas? Yeah, it's the Christmas game. that It's on Christmas that the knight comes and they chop his head off, and then the guy's got to go back the next Christmas and get his head chopped off. <laughs> Perfect. Sounds like a jolly family. Yeah, we're going to come over to Jeremy's barn and do a double feature of Eyes Wide Shut and The Green Knight. <laughs> yes, please. And then Die Hard for anyone that wants to stay up late. <laughs> yes, please. All right, I'm there. Robocop for the true heads. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I've got this record, and it's like disturbingly happy. It's almost unnerving <laughs> to put this on. Like It's so upbeat. It feels like a scene from a movie where everything is about to go horribly horribly wrong like i'm waiting for the record to just like warp and then it to like suddenly become a nightmare at any given second (laughs) it doesn't though it just stays silly and goofy the whole way through exactly (laughs) yeah it's like those those cutaway random like slapsticky cutaway scenes in with the police and the original last house on the left <laughs> oh my well another christmas not a christmas movie, movie. <laughs> I, I was just curious if anyone on the record was anyone of note or the ranger or anything because i don't know anything about like the band behind it that's a solid maybe right jeremy <laughs> that's a solid maybe and so I didn't mention the band in the beginning. The band labeled on this album is The Border Brass. Right. But that's not a real thing. And right. this is a Pickwick record. <laughs> yup. <laughs> this is Pickwick. This is Pickwick. And Pickwick in this era was doing what was called sound-alike records. Yep. Where they would try and make things that sound like things people would know to cash in basically so this is them cashing in on herb alper and the tijuana brass band becoming popular Mm -hmm. i can hear right with their tijuana christmas album and i'm i'm sure they're marketing it as if you can't find that or afford that then go with this or just don't care (laughs) Or you or see Tijuana and Brass on the title of the jacket and go, yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like I said, I've owned this record for a while. And up until today, I always just assumed that it was the Tijuana Brass and that it wasn't just some <laughs> different no-name band. So, like, it worked. Great job, guys. They're still fooling people <laughs> this far removed from putting it out. Yeah, the cover is fully ridiculous. Yeah. You have a large mustachioed Mexican man playing a trumpet with a sombrero on. He's wearing mittens while he's playing the trumpet. 
There's ornaments stuffed in the end of the horn. He's got like the big cheeks and his eyes are kind of bugging out and uh, it's just fully ridiculous. I saw a term that I liked when I was researching this. They referred to this as a mexploitation album. Wow. And that's dead on what it is. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's kind of what the brass craze was, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, this was likely recorded in New York. The one person whose name I could find associated with this is Maurice Bugs Bauer. Hmm. He produced and arranged this thing. It doesn't, I couldn't find anything about who the actual players were. But yeah. Pickwick was kind of like a factory where they would just right. crank out song after song after song. I was reminded by the new Velvet Underground documentary that I was going to make a Lou Reed joke, damn it. <laughs> yeah, Lou Reed worked for Pickwick, uh, yep. just writing tons and tons of songs for them in that manner. And it would have been shortly before this record was made. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say like that ostrich thing, I think it was like 65 or something. Yeah, right around there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they spare no expense on the album art, obviously, but the uh, music itself. <laughs> I love the music. It's so ridiculous. No, I mean, the whole so- the whole sound like thing is fascinating to me. It's right up there with like song poem stuff. Yeah, this is easily my second favorite Lou Reed album behind Lulu. <laughs> Do you want a Christmas? <laughs> yeah. And then Squeeze, which he's not on. Exactly. Metal Machine Music is a Christmas album. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, my Lord. So the one guy we do know that was on this, Bugs Bauer, he just died last year at the ripe young age of 98. Mm-hmm. Born in Atlantic City, out there by you, Sean Dad. Which is mm-hmm. Philadelphia is where Sean Dad's at. Oh yeah, Sean. Uh, were, were you quizzing me to see if I knew where I lived? I'm sorry, I missed that. <laughs> For our first time listeners. Yeah. <laughs> also, I don't know what Atlantic City was like in the '60s, but it sure is a cultural wasteland nowadays. So I don't know if it was better then or what. <laughs> wow. Ripping on Atlantic City. Now we got two cities that hate us. Oh, everybody knows it's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bruce Springsteen's going to yeah. come get you. <laughs> yeah, meet me tonight in Atlantic City. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> I love that song. Same. Well, during World War II, Bugs was out there leading a dance band up on the front lines and helping clear landmines when he wasn't. <laughs> leading a band, and he was actually a part of an infantry unit that liberated the first concentration camp, which is wow. pretty wild. Whoa. Uh, he, he came back to America and went to Juilliard. This is another Juilliard album mm. we're cranking out here tonight. Uh, but he left because he was into bebop jazz, and Juilliard is very much a classical kind of regimented place. So he went on his own kick in New York, ended up working with Perry Como, Cab Calloway, Liza Minnelli, the Beatles, and eventually helped Cool and the Gang rise to international fame producing what? their albums. <laughs> wow. Yeah, he like helped write some of their biggest hits, right? Yeah, and also wrote 
the itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow polka dot bikini song which was a huge hit (laughs) just your typical bio did he start singing in church too or (laughs) not that i know of i couldn't find anything about that okay (laughs) went to church never sang once didn't sing once in a church but yeah so he uh, ended up arranging and producing hundreds of recordings. He did movie soundtracks. He did a bunch of children's records. He did like those exercise records in the 80s when that became popular. So this guy, he's out to make money. And, you know, that's what he did with this money. Tijuana Christmas. Money he made, it sounds like. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But he's also clearly a true lover of music. He went. He did this his whole life. He wrote 35 music books for like people to learn music and then went on to actually be a professor of music when he got done in the music industry. Wow. And can you imagine my teacher is the person behind Tijuana Christmas? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Jungle Boogie. <laughs> <laughs> And some Beatles songs. (laughs) What? And he was in World War II, and he put out my favorite kids' records. And my mom's exercise records. (laughs) (laughs) A life well lived. Just a stack of accomplishments, for sure. Some people do more than we do. (laughs) Yeah. And I... 250 albums, Bob, or whatever. (laughs) Got a lot of catch up to play here. (laughs) Strangely, this album also has a little nostalgia value for me. I was given this album for Christmas when I lived in San Diego, right across the border from Tijuana. And I had this work buddy at an unnamed shipping company that... In case you never thought about it, everyone who works at shipping companies hates Christmas straight up because (laughs) you just have to work nonstop and it sucks. But uh, Mike from that shipping company thought it really funny that I was into vinyl records. He was like a little bit older than me and just thought it was ridiculous that people were getting back into vinyl. So he thought it was funny to give me this record from his father's collection, but I actually kind of cherish it. <laughs> nice. That's beautiful. I love that. Yeah. Funny how that worked out. Here we are talking about it on a podcast. Yeah. Thanks, so, Mike. Thank you, Mike, out there. If you <laughs> somehow are listening, I'm sure he doesn't listen to podcasts. But... Yeah. Also, thank you, Unnamed Shipping Company, if you're still in business or whoever you are. <laughs> yeah they're in business i just don't want them to sue me because they're very much in business yeah oh okay (laughs) well so is there another song you'd like us to listen to is this import export business what's (laughs) (laughs) always good to get a seinfeld reference in bob well done bob all right i called dibs this year on the silent night So I'm going to leave y'all with the Tijuana Christmas version of Silent Night, which is, I think, undisputably the best Christmas standard, period. Probably my favorite. I think we've discussed that on previous Christmas episodes. Yep. And I think it's been on the other 
two Christmas episodes, right? Have we had a version on each? I'm we'll going to say we yes. Have. Yeah, yeah, we definitely have. <laughs> we might have even featured it twice on one episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let's do that. But don't go anywhere. We have one more record to talk about after this. Have you guys ever heard a Tijuana harpsichord? <laughs> <laughs> this record's only missing a children's chorus for me to really push it over the edge. Oh, that reminds me. I wanted to warn our listeners and you all, there's a horrible version of this record out there <laughs> called Tijuana Christmas with Singers that is this same record. This record is instrumental all the way through. I don't think we mentioned that. But the Tijuana Christmas with singers, they just patched in the most just like bland 50s chorus Christmas singing over the top of these songs. And it is bad. I was shocked how much worse it makes the songs. Steer clear of that, (laughs) you're saying. Unless you like really bad music, I don't know. Not here to kink shame. Yeah, unless you've heard this record and you're like, this isn't this isn't over the top enough. It needs more. <laughs> <laughs> and by more, I want it to be just the most standard bland more that you could slop on top. <laughs> Let's just soak this in mashed potatoes and mm-hmm. 
Uh, well, I just love the constant re. I love the constant repackaging, like both literally where it's like every two years on a different sub label owned by the same large company. But like you said, it's it's literally the instrumental tracks just with vocals grafted onto it. Yeah. So it's yeah. God, it's it's so lazy and so genius exploitative all at the same time. Yeah. Also exploitative. Kind of like Christmas itself, right? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> oh, Coca-Cola hey, Santa. I'm, I'm also willing to bet I'm willing to bet that the guy on the cover is a white guy with a fake mustache, especially if you look at the back cover. It doesn't look very authentic to me. I could be wrong, though. Yeah, that might be something uh, that could be construed as, I don't know, slightly racist, yes. Hmm. Hmm. In 67? <laughs> no. <laughs> Not the Tijuana brass. Not the border brass. <laughs> Not an entire genre based on an American understanding of Mexican culture. No. <laughs> no. Yeah, there's nothing... If you're familiar with Mexican music, like nothing about this is Mexican. There's horns on it, I guess, but even the horns aren't authentic in any way or even trying to be. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? If you need to just bask in the inherent absurdity of the Christmas time, there is no better <laughs> record for you than the Border Brasses Tijuana Christmas. Yeah. During the break, I mentioned it's like, it's sort of Lynchian, but without being aware of itself, <laughs> like Lynch stuff. I can see this in Blue Velvet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Peter, what did you bring us? Throw that last log on the Yule fire. <laughs> yeah, sprinkle the dregs of that eggnog <laughs> around the hearth. <laughs> well, we're going to take a complete U-turn here and go with a country Christmas album. Hell yeah, I'm here for it. Nice. Last year I brought Tammy Wynette's Christmas album. This year I brought one by Emmy Lou Harris. Mmm, yeah. The only one by Emmy Lou Harris that I'm aware of, Light of the Stable, which came out on Warner Brothers in 1979. Nice. And we'll talk a little bit more about Emmy Lou Harris for those unfamiliar, but I think we should just get right into a song. We're going to start with the first song, Side A, Track 1, Christmas Time's A-Coming. Christmas. 
Christmas times are coming, Christmas times are coming, Christmas times are coming, and I'm going home. A bit of a shift, but a welcome shift. I love that. Yes. Emmy Lou Harris is such a good singer. Every time I hear her, it's just like, man, why are all of her records in the dollar bin? Why aren't people <laughs> listening to more Emmy Lou Harris? This is so good. Yeah. Occasionally I'll see a store that prices them higher, like they know how good she is. And, you know, she's got that Graham Parsons Association. But yeah, most of the time, her stuff is very underpriced, in my opinion. Yeah, I just shelved two copies of this exact album, and one was four, and the other was six. Yeah, reason. and think- it's a way better. And this, you know, and this is a holiday record. I mean, you know, like I mean, her run in the seventies of studio albums—it's absurd how good it is. And maybe it was so ubiquitous at the time that there's that many copies laying around. I don't know what, but definitely someone whose talent doesn't match, you know, the going rate for her work. Which is why we can talk about her on this podcast. Amen. <laughs> True. Until you drive her, her records into the stratosphere. <laughs> <laughs> so I liked that version of Christmas Times a Coming, which is a popular bluegrass standard written by electrical engineer and fiddler Tex Logan. It was first recorded by Bill Monroe in 1951. Which I didn't I didn't realize until doing a little research that Bill Monroe had initially popularized that song and the entire genre for that matter yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) bluegrass yeah he is the man in bluegrass but turning our attention to emmy lou harris i honestly didn't really know that much about her you know aside from her association with graham parsons and you know the fact that she's not only had a prolific and long solo career but collaborated with tons of other um, huge and amazing artists she's actually so she is from a career military family she was born in birmingham alabama in 1947 but she grew up in north carolina and virginia as people from career military families tend to do move around and she won a drama scholarship to the school of music theater and dance at the university of north carolina at Greensboro, and it was there that she began to study music and learn contemporary folk songs. So she started out with folk music, not country, and she dropped out of college to pursue her musical aspirations, moved to New York City during the Greenwich Village folk music boom in the 1960s. She worked as a waitress to support herself while performing folk songs there, and she actually released her first album as far back as 1969 it was called gliding bird it was a small label that put it out and it folded not long after it was released and so it never made much impact and she actually later disowned the album it was a folk album not country as she is you know that's what she's made her bread and butter but in 1971 members of the legendary 
country rock band the Flying Burrito Brothers saw her perform, and their bassist, Chris Hillman, considered asking her to join the Flying Burrito Brothers, but interestingly, instead recommended her to former burrito brother Graham Parsons, who was looking for a female singer for his debut solo album, GP. And Emmy Lou joined Parsons' band, The Fallen Angels, performed on that album, both of his albums that he put out as a solo artist. You know, and they, they sang these incredible duets and their voices just worked so well together. Rich harmonies. I think all of us are familiar with that work, right? All of us. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I, I was aware of her before getting into Graham Parsons. She was in that, uh, that Neil Young heart of gold movie, that concert movie that they did in the mid to late two thousands. Have, have yeah, you guys seen that. that? Yeah. Yeah, and that that's where I first recall really becoming aware of her. And so then when I got into Graham Parsons, you know, I heard this female voice on the album and I was like, I wonder that sounds like Emmy Lou Harris, and sure enough it was. That's really that's her big break was working with Graham Parsons. Now unfortunately, it was relatively short lived because Graham Parsons died of a drug and alcohol overdose in September of nineteen seventy three. Uh, shortly thereafter, Emily Lou was introduced to a Canadian producer named Brian Ahern, who produced her major label debut solo album, Pieces of the Sky, in 1975. As far as Emily Lou and many of her fans are concerned, that's where her solo career starts. And Warner Brothers told Emily Lou that she needed a hot band. So she gathered some of the world's greatest roots musicians and dubbed them the hot band. And those players are on this album. Guitarist James Burton is a renowned guitarist. He actually started with Ricky Nelson's band in the 1950s. Piano player Glenn Harden had been a member of the Crickets, Buddy Holly's band. And both of them, along with bassist Emery Jordy Jr., had worked with both Elvis Presley and Graham Parsons. So Emmy Lou had worked with these musicians in The Fallen Angels, as I understand it. We also have drummer John Ware. Weirdly enough, he was from the West Coast Pop Art Experimental Band. Whoa. <laughs> as well as uh, he had been in the Stone Ponies, Linda Ronstadt's band before her solo career. And he went on to the first national band, which was Michael Nesmith's country band, mm. Michael Nesmith from the Monkees. So that's yeah. drummer John Ware. Interesting career. And... Pedal steel guitarist Hank DeVito, he worked with the New York Rock and Roll Ensemble. Ooh. Nice. (laughs) The acoustic guitarist uh, Rodney Crowell had been discovered by Jerry Reed and Guy Clark. And Emmy Lou had recorded one of his songs on her debut and requested to meet him. And after sitting on a gig, Rodney Crowell became a member of her band. He was enlisted as the rhythm guitarist and duet partner. So that's her hot band, Emmy Lou Harris's hot band. Uh, all those players, as I said, appear on this album, as does renowned mandolin player Ricky Skaggs. Mm-hmm. We know that name? Yeah, he's out there. Big country name. Yeah. And the producer, Brian Ahern, performs various instruments as well. He was married to Emmy Lou for a number of years into the 80s, I believe. Now, there are 
some special guests who appear on this album. And as I, I said at the beginning that this was released in 1979. Now, my copy <laughs> says 1980. And I was informed while we were listening to the first song by both Sean and Bob that there is some interesting controversy over yeah. that. Discogs uh, controversy. I'm Discogs here for controversy. <laughs> <laughs> if you go to the master release page for this record on Discogs, the notes at the top of the page has a long paragraph that some <laughs> impassioned Discogs user wrote. <laughs> giving all of his reasons why he thinks there's no way that this record came out in 79. And in fact, it came out in 80. Oh, he says that oh. he has a test pressing dated 1980 and that he worked in radio at the time and remembers it coming out in 1980. But, uh, <laughs> is this guy me? I know <laughs> I read this and I was like, Oh my God, it's, is Peter's like grumpier <laughs> twin or something? I don't know. Are you also an asshole? Because this person sounds like an asshole. No. Uh, I, I should I, I should make a note I should make a note underneath it because you misspelled the word Europe and just point that out and leave it there and then see if maybe someone kills me for Christmas. <laughs> no, I can I can definitely appreciate somebody going to great lengths to dispute when something was released, <laughs> but I, I wouldn't be an asshole about it. Right. Yeah, this person seems like something's going on. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, wait. I'm reading the end of his paragraph, and it says, It looks like the album was released in Europe in 79 and the U.S. in 1980. So ah. everyone's right. <laughs> <laughs> See, everyone wins, because it's Christmas. Yes. <laughs> Let's all join Wonderful. hands, discogs of jerks. <laughs> so there's some special guests on this record, I hear, Peter? Ooh, <laughs> well, yes. So all that to, be, to say, yeah, we're only really a few years into her proper solo career and she's clearly already made some great connections in the world of music we're not going to play the song that this person appears on but we have mr willie nelson making an appearance on this album on one song and on the final song the title cut light of the stable which is written by steve and elizabeth reimer we have harmonies provided by neil young dolly parton and linda ronstadt interesting Power see pack. the page i'm looking at says dolly parton linda ronstadt and willie nelson and willie yeah maybe it's wrong and we should start yet another light of the stable discogs <laughs> controversy yeah we've really got to get to the bottom of this emmy lou harris record here guys <laughs> justice must be served well, i'm looking at the jacket right now okay it says harmony vocals neil young dolly parton and linda ronstadt well, I'll take the jacket over Discogs any day. Yeah. Willie Nelson, professional Neil Young impersonator. <laughs> <laughs> I know she later had released an album called Trio with Dolly Parton and Linda Ronstadt. Mm -hmm. And she's just worked with everyone. She She's even on a Bright Eyes album. That's and, how I initially had heard her was on that Bright Eyes oh, album. Wow. Yeah. And I was like, wow, this lady's she's one, She's one of those people. No, I mean she's she's definitely a musician's musician type, where like all the players love her, and but she's also someone who sold a lot of records relatively. Mm -hmm. Certified yeah. country royalty. Yeah, absolutely. So let's go ahead and listen to the title track with those harmonies from Neil Young, Dolly Parton, and Linda Ronstadt. I'll be the judge of that. <laughs> <laughs> 
definitely Neil. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> I love how someone who would be regarded traditionally as a terrible singer sings so well with all the people regarded as the best singers. Yes, I, I had the same thought. It always gels. Same, yeah, and it adds a certain character mm-hmm. to the really great voices, too, that blend. And the whole thing kind of feels a little bit like a Neil Young song anyways. Like, it makes sense oh, for him to yeah. be on that one. As soon as, like, right before the clip cuts and it goes down a whole step from the tonic... Like, that's a Neil Young trick, 100%. Something that struck me about this whole album is how it seems like she actually wanted to make a good album. And I know it's country, so, like, people are trafficking in earnesty there, and it's hard to tell what's real and what's not. But um, this definitely feels real and earnest, I would say. Oh, I'd agree. And also, when you look at where it's happening in the trajectory of her career, you know, Roses in the Snow is the album after Blue Kentucky Girl before. And that's part of that whole run up through at least Evangeline, where she's just on fire. And yeah, I love Blue Kentucky this is Girl. Just, oh, man. Yeah, so it feels like this is just an extension stylistic. And also how, like, like the first song you played, like part of what was great about her was she was thoroughly like a modern person but always like paying respect to all the traditions in country and bluegrass, especially at the cusp of like the late seventies, early eighties, when all the pop country started happening. Yeah, that's true. That's right on that cusp right here. Well, thank you for bringing that Peter. Thank you all for bringing these presents to, <laughs> to me. <laughs> the nice nicest Yule logs. logs. Yeah. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> I can't wait to burn them all. <laughs> burn them ralphie burn them all <laughs> well do we have any final holiday thoughts before we get out of here mm. Mm. make sure to sprinkle some eggnog on the fire yep oh i just wanted to tell everyone especially you sean that your cat philly boy roy as of the recording of this is the only person i bought a present for <laughs> that's beautiful i'll yeah. make sure he knows that he's the most loved most special little boy and yeah. he needs it the most my dog is staring at me so jealously right yeah. now. <laughs> I, can, I can verify there was a sadness in orson's eyes oh yeah don't worry i'm gonna i'm getting more presents but it just happens to be it just happens to be that philly boy roy is the only recipient so far yeah you know where your priorities are i respect that <laughs> true did we have a special song for, from elsewhere that we were going to end on. We've typically done that in the past. Did we have anything selected to go out on? Oh, I didn't even think about that. We usually do that. What, what, is there another like dollar record that we can think of that we want to... We don't have to do this all on air, by the way. <laughs> right, right. I'm just, no, no, I'm no, just no don't edit this part. Don't edit yeah. this. <laughs> I mean, I've got plenty of Dollar Bin Christmas records upstairs. I could go grab one. I'm trying to think what would work. You, you guys want me to go find a good uh, yeah, dollar go ahead record and, real quick? Yeah, go ahead and do it. that real quick. All right, I'll be right back. Yeah, we'll talk about you. Yeah. <laughs> this guy and his records. <laughs> oh, let me go upstairs and look at my records. 
All right. I think it's only right that we go out with a selection from Willie Nelson's Pretty Paper. You know, that's valid. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, I like it. You want me to read you the track list and you guys can tell me which one to do? No. Mm. (laughs) Making me Play the third song. Yeah, play the third song. What is the third song? Frosty the Snowman. Heck yeah. (laughs) Do it. Bring me that Frosty. Good night, everyone. Merry Christmas to you. Yes. A happy holiday to you all from I'd Buy That for a dollar. This is Peter Cook. I'm Sean Hartman. Good night, good morning, good afternoon, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, etc. I am Jeremy Ruggles. Have a wonderful time of consumption. I am Bob Bucko Jr. I once was a Grinch, but after this episode... My heart is three sizes too large. Oh, no. (laughs) Frosty the snowman was a jolly happy soul With a corncob pipe and a button nose And two eyes made out of coal Frosty the snowman is a fairy tale they say he was made of snow but the children know how he came to life one day there must have been some magic in that old silk hat they found for when they placed it on his head he began to dance around oh frosty the snowman was alive as he could be children say he could laugh and play just the same as you and me frosty the snowman knew the sun was hot that day so he said let's run and we'll have some fun now before i melt away down to the village with a broomstick in his hand running here and there all around the square say catch me if you can he led them down the streets of town right to the traffic cop and he only paused a moment when he heard him holler stop